0: Yes, all for Christ. The whole lot of it. From the top of our head to our big toe. All for Christ. We are blessed indeed in the United States to be able to gather together. To be able to gather online. To be able to have this communication and unity in Christ. Which we cannot have in many other countries. It does not exist in a great many other countries. Did you know that? People live in terror and they live in fear. And yet still they gather together to worship God. One of the earliest churches that has been found is seven stories down in a bunch of caves in in what's now modern Turkey. And there were Christians there worshipping God. You know, in the Holy Land they have found caves where Roman soldiers secretly gathered to worship Almighty God. They did it all for Christ. They risked everything for Christ because it is all for him, for our blessed Lord. Now, when Paul wrote this letter of Galatians, he had in his mind the casting out of Ishmael. It's most closely associated with this epistle. And it's believed to be, and it is known to be an allegory setting forth the spiritual experience of the believer when he dies to the law, when he dies to sin through the cross of Jesus Christ and comes into the resurrection life of his risen Lord. For it's all about him. It's not about us. It's all about his glory. But there is something more than the experience of Ishmael and our deliverance from the power of sin. In the patriarchal story, this was followed by the offering up of Isaac on Mount Moriah. And there can be no doubt that this sets forth the deeper spiritual experience into which the fully consecrated heart must come. The one who is fully All for Christ. When even the sanctified self is laid upon the altar, like Isaac upon the mount, and we become dead henceforth, not only to sin, but to that which is worse than sin, even self, selfishness, drives us on to sin. My very self must die. Not me, but Christ Jesus living. This is the lesson of Isaac's offering and Paul's experience. I have been crucified with Christ, he said. That is the death of sin. Nevertheless, I live. That is the new life in the power of his resurrection. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. That is the offering of Isaac. The deliverance from self and the substitution of Christ himself for even the new self. A substitution to complete that even the faith by which this life is maintained is no longer our self-sustained confidence, but the very faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that is, instead of me and as my substitute. When self gets in the way, we get in the way of Christ. We get in the way of being a true Christian because a true Christian is all sold out to Jesus. It's about his glory. It's not how we look. It's not about us. It's not about our glory. We're saved by Jesus Christ. I'm telling you the truth. I didn't save you. I didn't die on the cross for your sins. And neither did anybody else here. Jesus Christ did. And I serve him with all of my heart and all of my soul. And each and every one of us should. Because you know what? What he says is binding. And what he says goes. And he tells us to do what? Love one another. We have a powerful God. And if we love one another, then we don't put self before others, do we? We read back in the book of Joshua of the three sons of Anak who formed the Anakim, a race of giants who held the city of Hebron before Caleb's conquest and were the terror of the Israelites. Literally, Anak means long-necked and represents pride confidence, willfulness, and self-sufficiency, these unchristian values. The first of the Anakim may be called self-will, the disposition to rule, and especially to rule ourselves, the spirit that brooks no other will and is its own law and its own God. Sadly, there are a lot of people who think that what they think is what God thinks, and if God doesn't think what they think, well, then God needs to be educated. Sadly, a lot of people think like that. That's pride. That's stiff-neckedness. That is something they need to repent of. Therefore, the first step in the consecrated Christian life is something that many find hard to do. Unconditional surrender to God. Unconditional. This is indispensable to break the power of self at the center. We need to get off the throne and put Jesus back on it. We need to establish forever the absolute sovereignty of the will of God in the heart and the life of the true Christian follower. We cannot abide in holiness and we cannot be wholly used for God until self will is so utterly crucified that we could not even think for an instant of acting contrary to His will or without His orders. This is obedience. And obedience is the law of the Christian life and must be absolute, unquestioning and without any possible exception. Our Saviour says, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. John fifteen fourteen. That's quite clear, isn't it? It is true that God requires of us in the life of faith the exercise of a very strong will continually. And there is no doubt that faith itself is largely the exercise of a sanctified and intensified will. But in order to do this, it is necessary that our will be wholly renounced. And God's will accepted it instead. And then we can put into it all the strength and force of our being. And will it even as God wills it. And because he wills it. Because he wills it. In short, it is an exchanged will. the despotic tyranny of Anak exchange for the wise, beneficent, yet still more absolute sovereignty of God. Self-confidence is the next of Anak's race. It is the spirit that draws its strength from self alone and disdains the arm of God in the help of his grace in a milder, in a milder form it is the spirit that trusts its own spiritual graces or virtues. Its morality perhaps, its courage, its faith, its purity, its steadfastness, its joy and its transitory emotions of hope, enthusiasm or zeal. It is just as, nece- just as necessary to die to our own self-sufficiency as to our own self-will. If we do not We should have many a fall and many a failure until we learn. We must learn with the most triumphant and successful labour that ever followed in the footsteps of his Lord. That we are not sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves. But our sufficiency is of God. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 5 willful christians are disobedient christians the sanctified heart is not a self-constituted engine of power but it is a set of wheels and pulleys that are absolutely dependent upon the great central engine whose force is necessary continually to move them it is just a capacity to obey almighty god For we are just a vessel to be filled with his goodness. Held and used by his hand. Just a possibility of which he in his abiding life is constantly the power and force. It's all about the God of love. The word consecrate in Hebrew means to fill the hand. And beautifully suggests the idea of an empty hand which God himself must continually fill. You see self-glorying. Is the last and most impious of these Canaanitish tribes, of these pagan ideals that are still with us in the world today. You see, he takes the very throne of Jehovah and claims the glory due unto him alone. Sometimes it is a desire for human praise, sometimes it is more subtle. The pride so proud that it will not stoop to care for the approval of others and its supreme delight is in its own self-consciousness and so-called superiority, perceived ability, or goodness. This is vanity. And vanity seeks only the praise of others, but pride disdains the opinion of others and rests back in the complacent consciousness of its own excellency. Whatever its phase may be, the root and principle are the same. It is impious self. It is the impious self sitting on the throne of God and claiming the honor and glory that belongs to him and him alone. And this is shameful, this is rebellious, and it is divisive. These three forms of self are illustrated by three very solemn examples in the word of God. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he is a fearful monument to the peril of self-will. His downward career began as a single act of disobedience. A disobedience which seemed to have respect to a mere question of detail. But which was really an act of self-will. A substitution of his choice for God's express command. The prophet Samuel characterizes his sin in these very expressive words. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, the prophet says, To obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or devil worship, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and hath also rejected thee from being king he hath also rejected thee from being king. It is evident from these words that the very essence of Saul's sin lay in the element of his willfulness, his stubbornness, which had dared to substitute his own ideas and preferences for the word of Jehovah. From this moment, his obedience was necessarily qualified and, of course, worthless. And God sent his prophet to choose another king who, although full of human imperfections, had this one thing on which God could fully depend, namely a purpose to obey God, when he fully understood God's will. Therefore, God calls David a man after mine own heart, who shall perform all my will. First Samuel thirteen fourteen. Now David made many mistakes, and he committed many dark and terrible sins. But they were when under strong temptation. And when blinded by passion and haste, but never with the purpose of disobeying God. The sad, sad story of Saul's downward descent and final and tragic end lies before a willful soul. And to lead us to cry, Not my will, but thine be done. Luke 22, verse 44. Let it be God's will that is done. We think of Saul in that tragic day. He had disobeyed God. And upon that one day, Saul fell. His three sons fell, including the brilliant Jonathan, a wonderful prince. The house of Saul fell that day, and all because of his willful rebellion. We have just as marked an instance of the peril of self-confidence in Simon Peter. Strong in his enthusiasm and ignorant of the real weakness of his own heart, he honestly meant what he said when he exclaimed in Matthew 26:35, 35, though all men should deny thee, yet will I never deny thee. But alas, the shameful denial, the upbraiding look of Jesus. The bitter tears of repentance and the sad days of the crucifixion that followed had to teach him the lesson of his nothingness and the necessity of walking henceforth with downward head in the strength of the Lord alone. Brethren, we are nothing without Christ Jesus. Let us not think too much of ourselves. There are people out there that think way too much of themselves. They ascribed themselves titles of most worshipful father, most holy right reverend. I'm content with being saved by the blood of the lamb. I'm content with knowing that my savior died on the cross for my sins because he loved me, because he couldn't stand the thoughts of living in eternity without me. Me? Who am I? That's how much he loved me. Without Christ, I'm nothing. Without Christ, we are nothing. And in Christ, we must love as Christ loved. Have compassion as Christ had compassion. Trust in the will of God and obey his word in every single part. We are not left without a as vivid and impressive an object lesson of the last form of self-will, the pride that glories in its own achievements and excellencies. Over in Daniel chapter 4 and verse 30, we read, "Is not this great Babylon that I have built. His cries, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the great empire, in the hour of his triumph, as he looks upon that splendid city, which was indeed a paragon of human glory and surveys it in his imagination, the mightier empire for which it was just the metropolis. This was an empire that at the time was the largest in the world. It was the dominant superpower of the age. If mortal could ever have caused a glory in earthly things, in earthly magnificence, Nebuchadnezzar had. For God himself had compared him and his kingdom to a majestic head of gold, and it symbolized his power under the figure of a winged lion, combining the majesty and sovereignty of the eagle and the lion in one splendid image. But the very instant that vain glorious word reached the ears of Almighty God, the answer fell from heaven like a hammer onto anvil. The kingdom is departed from thee, And they shall drive thee from men and thy dwelling shall be in the hearts of the field till thou knowest that the most high ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Daniel 4 verse 32. Make no mistake, I'll tell you who's in charge. God's in charge. God is in control. This is the glorying of the carnal heart. But even the follower of God may mingle his own self seeking and his own honour with his work for God, and thus impair his usefulness and lose his own joy. There is not a more pitiful picture in the long panorama of the Bible than that morbid and grumbling prophet sitting outside the gates of Nineveh under a withered gourd, his face blistered and swollen with the scorching sun and his eyes red with useless weeping, asking God that he might die because his ministry had been dishonored and presenting a spectacle of ridiculous melancholy while all around him celebrated. They were rejoicing. The thousands were rejoicing and praising God for the mercy which God had shown them. That he had just delivered them from an awful catastrophe. Oh poor Jonah. He hated his enemies. Oh he hated the Assyrians. Nineveh was his capital. He wanted them to burn. He wanted God to send his hell fire and damnation upon them. Let them burn. God had given him the most honorable ministry ever. Yet accorded to a human being to that time. The first foreign missionary. He had been sent to preach to the mightiest empire in the face of the globe and that imperial city of the world, proud Nineveh. His preaching had been successful in no small part to God's mighty word. The whole city was lying on their faces at the footstool of mercy and repentance and prayer through his words and the nation's heart. And so for a moment at least, they returned to God. This pagan nation of idolaters, this cruel people, and the Assyrians were an immensely cruel people. They once kept an Arabian king at the gate with a rope threaded through his chin, through his cheek, as, to show their might, their power. They were a cruel, cruel people. Yet God gave them a chance and this cruel people that did not know God listened and they repented and yet this man he was so full of himself and all his all his work had been so utterly was he absorbed with his own credit with his own reputation his own honor that when God listened to the repentant cries of the Ninevites he revoked the sentence which Jonah himself had uttered and rendered his prophecy null and void God had the right to withdraw his judgment upon these people if they repented of their sins. And remember, before we become Christians, that judgment is upon each and every one of us. Hell will be our destination if we do not turn to Christ. So we're in the, in the exact same boat as those people were. Now, but Jonah was disgusted. He was exasperated. He was like, like a, a child. He went out and threw himself upon his face on the ground and asked God to kill him. Because God, because God, by his mercy, spoiled the prophet's reputation as a true prophet. In his mind, but nothing could have been further than the truth. He could not see, as God did, the unspeakable horror and anguish that had been averted. He could not see the joy of the divine heart of God in exercising mercy and in hearing the repentant cries of the people of Nineveh, and it started from the king on his way down. Jonah could not see the great principle of grace that underlines the divine threatenings. He could not see the great souled pity and felt for the 120,000 infant children it is estimated that lived in that great capital and the mercy shone upon them. They would have moaned in dying agony if Nineveh had fallen. All he could see was Jonah's reputation and what people might say when they found out his word had not come to pass. And with that one little worm gnawing at the root, his peace and happiness like his own gird withered away, And God had to set him up in a sort of dried, as a sort of dried specimen of selfishness to show the meanness and misery of the self-life that mingles its own glory with the sacred work of the glorious God. And which ever since the days of Jonah has rendered it impossible for God to use many a gifted man and has blighted the church of Christ and rendered vain the ministry of thousands because God could not use them without giving to men the glory which he will never give to another. Glory be to God, not to me, not to us. Glory be to God. God had tried to teach Jonah before he sent him to Nineveh, for he knew the secret bane of his heart. And so he immersed him for three days and nights in the sea and buried him in the bowels of a whale. But out of that, Jonah came as great many other people come out of the experience of sanctification with, unfortunately, a big self, supreme even in the sin cleansed soul. Selfishness stands in the way of Christian growth. The effects of self are terrible. You see, it dishonors God and sets up a rival on his throne. The devil was not altogether a liar when he said to our first parents, you shall be as gods. Genesis 3 verse 5. This is just what fallen man tries to be, does he not? A God unto himself. This is the essence of the sin of selfishness. That it puts man in the place of God by making him a law and an end unto himself. Whenever any person acts, either because it is his own selfish will, or for his own self-interest. Purely as an end, he is claiming to be his own God and directly disobeying the first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Exodus 20 and verse 3. Moreover, in assuming the place of God, he is doing it in a spirit that's very opposite of God's. For God is love, and love is the very opposite of selfishness. He is thus mimicking God and proving at the same time his utter unfitness to occupy the throne by his unlikeness to him. It leads to every sin and brings back the whole power of the carnal nature. For while self alone attempts to keep the heart, it finds sin and Satan too strong. A self-perfection is not possible by any man. There must be more than I before there can be victory. In the seventh chapter of Romans, the Apostle Paul tells us what I myself can do, and that is ineffectually struggle. In the eighth chapter of Romans, it is what Christ in me can do, and that is victory and everlasting love. A man or woman who only goes as far as to receive Adamic purity, if such a thing be included in the gospel at all, We'll soon have the next chapter of Adamic history, and that is the temptation and fall. But the man or woman who receives Christ to dwell within and keep the heart by his mighty power through his word shall rise to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The self-life leads back to the dominion of Satan. Satan's own fall began in a form of self-love made to be dependent upon god at every moment he became independent in his mind and contemplating his own perfection and thinking it was something that was his own he became separated from god and then inevitably fell into rebellion against him and eternal rivalry disobedience and all that can be the opposite of the divine and the holy and make no mistake There are some out there that teach that Satan is the equal and opposite of God. There are even some people who falsely teach that Satan is God in another form. This is utter nonsense. Satan does not have equal power with God. He has has nothing compared to, to Almighty God and his power. He is a created being that thought way too much of himself and shared his example with humanity. And we have seen the disastrous consequences of this. In the world, in nations, in families, in churches, in self. And so any soul that becomes self-constituted or occupied by its own virtues and tries to be independent of Jesus, either as the source of its strength or the supreme end of its being, will fall under the power of Satan and will share his awful descent. So where can we find a sadder illustration of the end of self than in the account of King Saul? It began with Saul and ended with Satan. The first chapter is self-will. The last is the awful night at Endor and the bloody day of death and ruin at Mount Gilboa before the heathen Philistines. It is fatal to the spirit of love and harmony. It is the opposite of love and the source of strife bigotry, suspicion, sectarianism, envy, jealousy, racism, division and the whole race of social sins and grievances that afflict the Christian life and the church of Christ. It is the mother of all strifes and sectarianisms of the church from the very beginning. Where it prevails there can be no true unity, no happy cooperation. You never can have a harmonious church or a happy family where self is predominant in the hearts of the people. The very secret of Christian cooperation and happy church life is this. Found in Colossians 3 verse 13. Not my opinion, it's right there in the word of God. Forbearing one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, in honour preferring one another. There's no room for the bully, for the bigot, Or toxic personalities. It is all about God or not at all. It mars our work for God. Self-will will will try to force the chariots of God's power and grace upon our own sidetracks and that God will never commit. Self-confidence will need to build up of the kingdom of Christ by human forces and unsanctified instrumentalities and presume to go where God has not sent and to do what God has not qualified us to do by his holy word, the result is a crude work, defiled by worldliness and sin, impermanent and unfruitful, as much of the Christian work of today is. And above all others, the spirit of self-glorying will try to use the pulpit, the organ gallery, the subscription books and the denominations, the religious papers, the charitable scheme, the very mission for winning souls as a channel for developing some so-called brilliant character, their own, to bring glory to themselves or glorify some rich man or woman or minister to the spiritual self-sufficiency of some successful worker. And God is disgusted with the spirit of idolatry and his word turns away grieved for the honour of Jesus. Until we are so yielded to our master that he and he alone can be glorified in our work, the Lord cannot trust us with much service for him, or it will simply become the pinnacle of the temple from which the devil will hurl us down. Self makes us unhappy. It is the root of bitterness in every heart where it reigns. The secret of joy is hidden in the bosom of love, and the arms of self are too short to ever reach, it, my friends. Not until we dwell in God and God in us and learn to find our happiness in being lost in him and living for his glory and for his people shall we ever know the sweetness of divine blessedness. All the world cannot fill this hungry heart. All our spiritual treasures only corrupt if we hoard them for ourselves. Only water that runs is living water and only when it is poured into other empty vessels does it become of value the self-willed man is always a miserable man he gets his own way and does not enjoy it and wishes after he had got it that he had never gone it for it usually leads him over a precipice the self-sufficient man can never know the springs which lie outside his own little heart and the self-glorying man just like poor Herod is eaten of worms, the worms of corruption and remorse with which God always feeds the impious soul, the impious, impious soul that dares to claim the honors are due to him and him alone. Self-love always leads to a fall, and the boasted wisdom must be proved to be foolishness. For the proud arm must be laid like Pharaoh's in the dust. The self-sufficient boast like Peter's must be answered by his own failure. The disobedient path which refuses God's wise and holy will must be proved to be a false way. Every idol must be abolished, every high thing brought low, and no flesh glory in his presence. Oh my friends, if you're going, if you're going on your own will, on your own strength, on your own gratification and glory, beware. Thorns lie in your pathway, serpents lurk beneath your feet, yawning abysses, perilous, per- per- perilous precipices, angry tempests, midnight darknesses, many a sorrow, many a tear, and many a tear, many a fall await you. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six says, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool. And Proverbs 14:12 says, "There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death." Proverbs 14 and verse 12. So let us ask our faithful God to save us from this tyrant that dishonors God, that leads us into captivity to Satan, that withers love, that mars the work of God, that poisons all our happiness, and plunges us into failure and ruin and division. And so to show us that we are nothing, that we shall be glad to save Christ and to have him live in us as our all in all. But wait, there's a remedy for self. God often has to let self have its way until the cures as effectually of showing us the misery and failure which it brings. This is the only good there is in our own struggling. That it shows us the vanity of the struggle and prepares us more quickly to surrender to God. And to sometimes, and so sometimes even our disobedience is overruled to make us fear and repeat the experiment or to venture again one step beyond our Father's will. So let us beware how we attempt the experiment ourselves, for there is always one step too far. To return. God has placed around us the blessed restraints of other hearts and lives to check and checks upon our own selfishness. The Bible tells us that God has made no man independent of his brethren. We are fitly framed together. Ephesians 2 21 and so to grow into a holy temple in the Lord we must be as one. We are adjusted one to his bone and by that which every joint supply. The body is ministered unto, the, unto, unto and groweth into the fullness of his stature. You see, the church of Christ is no autocracy where one man can be a dictator or a judge, but a fellowship where one alone is master, and that's King Jesus. Any work which depends upon a one-man despotism becomes withered, It is true that God has ranks of workers, but they are all harmonious and linked in heavenly love. And it is evident by what they say, what they do, by their conduct. For we are governed by God's word alone. The man who cannot work with his brethren in mutual comfort and harmony has something yet to learn in his own Christian life. It is true God does not require us to work with unsanctified men. But there are plenty of sanctified ones, thank God, today where any earnest heart can find a fellowship of service. And while he will teach any of us by ourselves and wants us to be independent of our brethren in the sense of leaning on God instead of others, yet he does require that we should be able to cooperate with them for God, submitting ourselves one to another in the fear of God, one sowing and one reaping, and both rejoicing together, bearing one another's burdens, and so fulfilling the law of Christ. Galatians 6, 2, true yoke fellows. As we read in Philippians, 2, uh, Philippians 4, 3. And so by innumerable phrases and figures... God has taught us the blessed truth of Christian cooperation in the spirit of self-renunciation and mutual confidence and love. Let us receive these blessed lessons and helps. And let him so slay in us the self-asserting I. I want, I think, my opinion. Our opinions are nothing. God's word is everything. And they must be surrendered to his word in its entirety. We must be like David's men. To be able to keep rank in the battle. In the great host of God. And for his glory. You see the love of Jesus is the divinely appointed prescription for the death of self. For putting it aside. Paul expresses it beautifully. We thus judge that if one died for all then all are we're de- then we're all dead and that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto him that died for them and rose again second corinthians 5 and verse 14 it is not a new but an appropriate thought that all the things of god that god has used have first been sanctified you see we have a sacrificed and sanctified saviour. One who gave himself and made himself of no reputation that God has so highly exalted and given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth. Philippians 2 and verse 10 at the name of Jesus not our name, not at my opinion at what he said That's how we live our lives. That is how we can sleep at night. That is how we are assured that we are saved according to God's word. When we obey God's word. When we apply God's word to our lives. And we remember his love, his compassion, his grace. Brethren, we are not Pharisees. We are not Sadducees. We are not scribes. We are supposed to be followers of Christ. And if so... We are to be humble in our service to him, gentle in our ways with each other, and thankful that no matter where we are in the world today, we are joined together as one body, as one bride, in love, in spirit, to Almighty God. See, this whole world is a room. Every inch of the planet Earth, and when Jesus became the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, reigning forever at the sight of God, the Holy Land was expanded beyond the borders of the Old Testament to every inch of this world. Going back to the beginning, it was an Isaac that was be, being prepared to be sacrificed. It was through him that God made the promised seed and the progenitor of the tribes of Israel. And it was on that very Mount Moriah where Isaac was almost put to death that God afterwards built his glorious temple. And so it is only when our Isaac is on the altar and our whole being lost in God that we can lay the deep foundations and build up the everlasting walls of the living temple of which he is the supreme and eternal glory. Just as God stayed the arm of Abraham from bringing the blade down upon Isaac. And brought a substitute. So God has stayed his hand of righteous judgment upon each and every one of us. And put that judgment on the Lamb of God. On Jesus Christ. Friends. Come and let him teach you the degree of joy. The joy that has learned to say not only my beloved is mine. But better even I am my beloved's. And we shall find us one in our dear, as one of our dear missionaries to China used to say, he is willing to come into the heart of every one of us and love us to death. Will we deny self? Will we put aside all division? Will we recognize that we are one body in Christ, worshiping him worldwide, no matter where we are? If we're lying on our back somewhere, if we're standing up straight, if we're sick, we can barely speak. If all we can do is hear, just barely hear. If we're listening in a brave outpost of our military in Kuwait or somewhere like that, and I know they do listen, we're with you, we thank you. You're not alone, no matter how far away you are our souls are bonded in one spirit of worship and love to the God of love. He has binded our hearts together. We need to deny self. We need to deny our opinions. We need to bow to the mighty God of Israel, the God of this world who tells us to love one another, to put aside all divisions, to unite in service to him in order to do this we must deny self in Acts 22 16 Paul who had been on his way to Damascus with a license to kill Christians he had a license to kill from the religious authority had an encounter with Jesus Jesus said Saul why dost thou persecute me Christ takes personally the persecution of his body. Many will say that Paul was converted right then, but no. Paul went all the way to Damascus. And the very people he had received a license to kill were the people that were going to help him. And Acts 22, 16, one of those men, Ananias, came forward and he'd seen Saul. Saul had been praying for three days. He'd been blinded. Three days he'd been praying his sinner's prayer. Three days, and it didn't work. He wasn't saved. Ananias told him the will of God. And now, why tarryest thou? Why are you waiting? Why are you wasting time praying for three days? Arise and be, what? Baptized, fully immersed for the forgiveness of your sins. Calling on the name of the Lord. When you call upon the name of the Lord today, You know what it means? It means that I trust you, Lord. I trust the Lord that he is capable and able and willing to do all that he has promised when I have been obedient to the commands of Christ and his apostles. The God of the Bible is the God that brings the world together in unity, in him, in Christ. But only if they have obeyed the commands of Christ. If you're not a Christian today, I beg you, get into Christ baptised not because I say it but because God tells us that's how we enter into his kingdom that's the terms of entry into the kingdom of God it's quite simple it's right there and if you are a Christian and you have put yourself before God if pride has gotten in the way if I think is more important than what God thinks get right with God while yet you may Job 14 verse 5 tells us that God has numbered all our days so we don't know how long we're going to live. We don't know but he knows. He knows when time runs out and that time is clicking. One of the things I hate most in the world is a ticking clock, tick, tick, tick. I hate it because when my grandmother was dying there was a clock ticking on the mantelpiece and every time that clock ticked it was one second I would have less with her. Those clocks don't stop ticking. It's a countdown. So make sure you're right with God now because eventually that clock is going to stop. It will run out and we don't know. Become a Christian today if you are not or if you are and you need our help, you need to repent of sins. Please come forward as we're here for you as we stand and sing the song of invitation. May the Lord be with you all.